This is Karen Aslan. I am the founder and CEO of Introduction Capital. Welcome to IntroCap Interviews. Throughout this series, I will be interviewing various experts, many of who specialize within the alternative investment industry. Our podcast platform allows them to share their wisdom and personal views with our broad community of investors and investment professionals. Today's interview is with Ken Grual, who is the CEO and co-founder of Fourth Lane Partners, an innovative multifamily office dedicated to servicing Canada's ultra-high net worth families. Ken brings deep capital markets and global thematic domain expertise to Fourth Lane. His cross-border career spans over 20 years, and he has extensive experience in the capital markets as a strategist and advisor. Good morning, Ken. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, Karen. My pleasure. It's so nice that you're here. Uh, we haven't spoken for a while, but you know, I remember fondly when you first came back to Toronto and were just starting uh, Fourth Lane and getting going with that. And um, here we are four years later. So really nice that you're here, Ken. And I just wanted to ask you if you could perhaps start by talking about your career history maybe even your education and your roots and how, um, how your career has progressed to now. Well, I, uh, my parents immigrated to Canada when I was one. You know, uh, my mom was a dishwasher. My dad drove a cab. So uh, I, I was preordained to be sent to the salt mines of Wall Street. Uh, so I went to Queens, uh, took the commerce degree there. And my first role at a university uh, was as an investment banking analyst at uh, Scotia McLeod in corporate finance. And at the time, I didn't quite appreciate how blessed I was. Uh, you know, the Canadian investment banks, I think for a young person are an incredible place to begin their careers because Canada by definition is a subscale country. So I got to work on tech companies, forest products, semiconductors, debt, equity, IPOs, M&A, and that richness of going across sectors and asset classes, you know, if you're coming, uh, if you're joining a U.S. or European investment bank, you're, you're made a specialist right away. You know, you only do small cap biotech. So beginning in Canada uh, and having the privilege of working at Scotia McLeod, uh, you know, I learned uh, to become a very strong generalist and I, something which I think Canadians are exceptional at uh, is collaboration. So I think that collaborative mindset uh, those two underpinnings really served me uh, before I moved on to the U.S. Great, thanks. And so when did you go to New York? Was that the first place in the U.S.? Yeah, so I moved to New York to run equity capital markets for Canada for Credit Suisse First Boston. Uh, and, and at the time, they were the world's largest underwriter investment bank to technology companies, which at the time, you know, it was just the, it was the very early days of the Internet. So I was based in New York, Toronto and Palo Alto. Uh, and what an incredibly rich learning uh, experience. Again, although this was different, uh, in the U.S., what I really learned about was technology and how technology would so deeply transform every industry, frankly, how we live. And so at the time, you know, we took the Cisco's, the Amazon's, the AT&T wireless of the world, the TD Ameritrade's uh, public. And so that's just, you know, the convergence of technology with uh, existing industry was something that was just such a focus in Palo Alto in New York. Uh, so that added to my education and it also added a global perspective. And that's where I really began to realize there were no such thing. When it came to capital, there were no real borders or industries. Uh, so 
to put things in perspective, when I want to say in 2000, I want to say the average S&P company would have lasted, say, roughly 30 years or so. We're now down to 12 or 14 years. So that creative disruption was something I saw firsthand. Uh, and it was exciting, you know, risk taking, uh, making mistakes, failing forward, lots of failing forward, uh, because it was a pretty dry patch from 02 to 07 in capital markets for growth companies. But the long-term secular trend is, you know, is, is firmly intact. Mm-hmm. And then from there, where did you go? So from there, I uh, moved back home to Canada to, to work at UBS. Uh, UBS at the time was a joint venture between Bunting, a Canadian investment bank, and UBS Warburg. And it was kind of the best of both worlds for me. <laughs> it was yeah. a global, it was bringing the world to Canada, Canada to the world. It was really a global perspective, but with local ownership. And it was important for me to be at a firm that cared about Canada, that wasn't just global. Uh, because, you know, one of the risks of working at a global entity is they come in and out of Canada during cycles. They're not very committed all the time. Uh, but at UBS Bunting or UBS Canada, we had a very unique shareholder agreement and uh, an incredible leader in Jim Estee. And uh, I convinced Jim that we should build this thing called a hedge fund business. And he says, what are hedge funds? No, I'm being facetious. Uh, but it was very early on. And I said, well, right now we call private equity funds. We'll call KKR or Blackstone with good ideas or, or companies. Uh, but what if we called you know, Goldman Prop or SAC or Soros or hedge funds with good ideas? It's ultimately it's, it's alpha or value add. And uh, that worked really well. Uh, we had a great run and uh, we eventually sold UBS Canada back to the parent. Uh, but it was, it was that incredible synergy of, you know, kind of global news, local news views. Right. Okay. And then did you go back to New York again after that? Yes. And then I went back to New York to uh, work with BMO uh, in a leadership role in their U.S. equities business. And BMO, you know, I guess its predecessors, Burns Fry, uh, Nesbitt Burns, they had done an excellent job, especially in the resource sector uh, of building relationships with the United States. But they also did something else that really appealed to me. They valued equity research. So if you look at investment banks, uh, research can sometimes be viewed as a cost center, uh, as a sales tool. And what I found at BMO was this long, I think they were number one in, in uh, Brendan Woods in Canada for something like 25 or 30 years. So that commitment to authentic, high integrity research really mattered to me. Uh, and uh, it was a wonderful firm. Uh, I still have great things to say about BMO. Uh, so built that business for six years. And uh, after that, I went to one of my largest clients, uh, which was at the time, now it's called Point72. At the time it was called SAC. The, the global head of commodities, Nick Tiller, uh, was my client. And Nick said, uh, when are you gonna take the training wheels off and take more risk uh, and try to build a business? I said, okay, Nick, I think I'm ready. And so Nick was very inspiring. I mean, he he had you know been a star portfolio manager at Fidelity, then at SAC, but uh, he was also, he grew up in a trailer park and he was the second youngest kid in his class at Harvard Business School. And just, you know, a lot of cultural and intellectual alignment. And, uh, you know, so I went to build Pocosti, which was a natural resource specialist global hedge fund. Uh, and we were one of the largest launches uh, of the year when we, be, we launched that business. And Nick's still a great friend to till today. Uh, but then after that, we moved back home to Canada. Uh, our parents were getting older. Yeah. Uh, and Christina and I uh, wanted to build a family. We wanted our family to be in Canada. So it was kind of the family double play. 
And uh, so we moved back home and this is where the vision of the multifamily office started. Uh, okay. And, and Ken, tell me a little bit about your partner and um, Bob and how he's been integral in, um, in all of this and why the two of you came together. Bob Williams is a true gentleman. I, uh, Bob's an incredible human being, but also an incredible investor. So uh, when I was at Scotia McLeod, my two mentors in, in equity capital markets were Brian Porter, who's now the CEO of Scotia Bank, uh, and Bob Williams. <clears throat> and they both had incredible gifts. I learned from both of them. And Bob's particular strengths were, uh, Bob is an incredible investor. So he would price, you know, depending on the year at Scotia McLeod, he priced 10 to $12 billion of risk per year. Uh, and I think he spent over 40 years at Scotia McLeod and really to deeply understand uh, corporate strategy, corporate finance, capital markets, but also to, you know, to make thematic bets. So for example, Bob, uh, you know, he was not only one of the co-founders of Canada's income trust market, which is the U.S. version of the junk bond market. Uh, Bob was a seed investor or early stage investor in many of Canada's leading businesses. So whether it was the Toremonts, the Enerflexes, the CIs, the McKenzie's, Bob was an early mover and his view was you have to get the theme right, uh, then you have to get the management team right. And so when I came to him with the vision for Forest Lane, he said, well, I am the client, uh, I'm sure. And uh, he goes, I believe that there are many firms in Canada who bits and pieces very well, but I would like a holistic offering. And so I'll be your first client and uh, I'm gonna make your work really, really hard. <laughs> okay. And so Bob, uh, Williams and yourself are co-founders of Fourth Lane. Yes. And how many uh, employees do you have now currently? We're at about 20 now. 20. So that's quite quite um, a nice growth for a business that started. Is it, It's four years now, isn't it? Yes. Fourth Lane started? Okay. Um, so Fourth Lane believes that true wealth goes beyond a family's portfolio and income. This comes from your website. Can you talk about the four quadrant approach that you take and those are values wealth, physical and mental wellness, relationship wealth, and financial wealth. How important are each of these? Well, I'll start with the fourth quadrant. So we'll call that financial wealth. So, you know, our backgrounds, you know, with private equity, hedge funds, Ontario teachers, UBS, Credit Suisse, et cetera. You know, most would look at our team and say you have incredible domain expertise in investment management and corporate advisory, which is all true. Having said that, even if you are the world's best investor and best merchant banker, we all know that families generally in three generations, you know, 90% of the time it's shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And it's because people don't pay attention to the other three quadrants. So it's insufficient to have just world-class investment, in, you know, corporate finance team. You really need to invest heavily in the other three quadrants. And, you know, even when you look at investment alpha or outperformance, well, 50% of it is simply uh, time horizon, it's duration. And how do you build that psychology of duration? Well, it goes to the other three quadrants. So for example, you look at values wealth. Uh, we say call it spiritual values wealth. This is not something you can, you know, you just, here's a book. It's something you have to role model, teach and invest. It's, it's full life cycle learning and development. Uh, you know, physical and mental wellness and we never anticipated COVID, but, you know, mental wellness, uh, unfortunately, uh, has become significantly more challenging at, at every age group. 
And I guess last on the community or relationship wealth, it, uh, we are at an 80 year low in community wealth uh, or cohesiveness. So if you, Dr. Um, uh, I forget his name, Bowling Alone, uh, the professor from Harvard, he said, look, because we need to make this better. Uh, so in any event, that's where we focus because we're trying to create, you know, a regenerative, resilient family as a. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, you know, you talked about your wife, Christine Ken earlier, and you told me that she really changed how you looked at these four areas. In other words, you know, talk is one thing, but to really take action to experience and, and, and value these areas in a way that you're, you're going you're gonna to make it happen. I guess I wanted to ask you um, to talk a little bit about how Christine influenced you. Um, you lost Christine this year. Very sorry to hear that. I, I met her and she was an incredibly lovely woman. Maybe you can comment a little bit on um, that experience in, in any way that you'd like. Yeah, my wife was uh, an incredible, incredible human being. Uh, she taught me a lot uh, and she's still teaching me. So, you know, before she passed, she wrote me a letter uh, and said, Here, here's some advice. And, you know, one of her pieces of advice was she goes, I, I'm glad that you've identified the four quadrants. I now need to make sure that you actually live them. So live your values and take action. And really, uh, you know, I... I can't thank her enough for that, but also, you know, we're building fourth lane. She said, you can mortgage our house, take all the risk you need. The country needs this. We're going to be successful. So uh, she really supported me, you know, in, in that sense as well. Uh, but uh, I, I, last week I actually bought the uh, motel. That's where the Schitt's Creek uh, TV series, the Netflix show uh, was filmed. And actually were some very prominent NBA players also were housed when they were in high oh, school. And uh, really, Tina and I always had a vision. She says, take fourth lanes, four mm -hmm. quadrants, and create fourth lane farms. So build a, a campus that's based on the circular economy, on entrepreneurship and risk-taking in Canada. And she said, have fun. She was build community, have fun, see the entrepreneurs of the future. And so, you know, I, I, uh, it's not where I thought I would be. I uh, hadn't even seen Schitt's Creek until about a year ago. Uh, but I'm excited and I'm really grateful to my wife, you know, for teaching me that. And uh, you know, she came from a family of a long lineage of environmentalists. So uh, John Muir, who built, helped build the U.S. National Park System, uh, that's, that, that is her ancestry and uh, love for nature, for animals uh, and fashion even. You know, she always said, there's no reason you can't have four-man function. And so there's a whole constellation in a world that, frankly, without my wife, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, that's a really nice um, testimony to her. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with, uh, with this new property that you've built. And uh, all of our listeners will stay tuned about that. So let's briefly discuss investment management. Um, Fourth Lane says that they bring institutional grade pension plan style investing to families of wealth and that your approach is global, independent and encompasses public and private markets. So um, talk more a little bit about your high level investment management approach. Yes, yeah, so when I when we moved back to Canada to build Fourth Lane, we interviewed uh, 
a lot of the leading pension plan CEOs and said, you know, why isn't this there this offering for ultra high net worth Canadian families? And they said, look, they said, there are firms in Canada that do an excellent job at bits and pieces of this, but nobody's ever brought it together. Uh, and so uh, we convinced Wayne Cozen, my partner, who was the head of equities, fixed income and alternatives at Ontario Teachers. Uh, so he started teachers when they literally had cash or T-bills and they built out, you know, what, what are now, you know, the, the world's first private equity co-invest, the world's first airport deal, which he worked on. They bought the Sydney airport, the world's first music royalty deal. Canadians have a lot to be proud of. And so for us, there was just this gap in the market where people had taken the pension plan or endowment model but they had frankly staffed it with people with private banking backgrounds. They hadn't gone and hired the portfolio managers who had that institutional grade experience. And similarly on the corporate advisory side, again, the corporate advisory piece, most people forget for a vast majority of families, their largest wealth is actually their operating business. And so and when we looked around the world, the family said, uh, you know, put aside my liquid portfolio, because we, we know that's where wealth management has historically focused on. Can you please help me with my operating business? Because it's uh, there's lots of opportunity with technology and globalization, but there's also a lot of volatility. And so if you can provide deep perspective that you learn on the investing side of the house on corporate, you know, trends uh, to help us with you know, acquisitions or dispositions that are one standard deviation away vertically or horizontally, horizontally, sorry, horizontally away from the core operating business, that would be extremely helpful. And so we received that message loud and clear is that they just, they said, we want a higher caliber team executing here and we don't want the conflicts, right? So one of my, one of my old mentors, when he left Wall Street as an investment banker, he was hired by the Heinz family, the Ketchup family uh, and KKR. And they said to him, your role is going to be to help us audit the advisors. So we're not trying to displace uh, any of our advisors. So, you know, Goldman or McKinsey will still be hired. It's just we need an independent, objective party that is as sophisticated, that can help us quarterback and audit. Uh, and really, that's that's the role we have. Uh, we want it to be because we can't be all things to all people. We're ultimately, we're a humble, humble Canadian startup. So. Uh, but we did think that object objectivity, that global perspective, and deep domain expertise would add value. Uh, and then it, you know, it, it also comes down to, on the investing side of the house, we wanted uh, high quality global co-invests, and we wanted high quality directs, uh, because we're trying to increase diversification and lower costs for our clients. And you can't bring in high quality directs unless you're a thematic investor and you can help a company create value. If you're just being invited to the party, that's okay. Mm -hmm. but that is, you are leaving a lot of alpha on the table. So we work very, very hard on uh, being, you know, very early investors in big themes and big companies. And we can talk about some of those if you'd like. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind giving us an example of um, something currently you're doing. Yeah, so, uh, I'll give you two quick examples. So about seven years ago, uh, a young man I mentored at the hedge fund D Shaw where Jeff Bezos got to start. He came to me with an idea. He said, we need to build in uh, LinkedIn or Uber for uh, blue collar workers and oil services equipment. And I kind of looked at him and said, well, Uber's ubiquitous. I mean, how is this rocket science? I go, can't, you know, Exxon Mobil just take one of its 50,000 engineers and build an app? And he said, well, he said, when was the last time that Palo Alto, Calgary, and Houston spoke. I said, 
As a former energy investment banker, I can assure you that they don't speak. Uh, the second thing was he said, uh, when was the last time a world-class developer wanted to work for a mega cap company? I said, well, that is true as well, having lived in Palo Alto. So I said, okay, you've got something. I said, let's break the business down into six strategic Lego pieces and let's build a presentation. And so I provided my feedback, but make a long story short, uh, he received seed capital from Peter Thiel, uh, the co-founder of PayPal, one of Facebook's like, first external investors. And uh, we just valued the business. We did that at like a $10 million valuation and, and the business now, uh, we just did a Series E last week at a $2.6 billion valuation. So that's an example where I was able to be a seed investor. Uh, but we also, for our clients at Fourth Lane, this company raised capital about a year ago uh, at a $1.9 billion valuation. So a nice markup for our clients and investors. So we were invited again into an offering led by uh, Andreessen Horowitz and Brookfield because we had helped build the company. Fast forward to today, we just did a deal uh, two weeks ago in a cybersecurity space for a company called Versec. They raised $100 million. Investors in this round included executives, also known as the operators, who have played senior leadership roles at leading global innovation bellwethers such as Cisco, Raytheon, EMC, Fisher Scientific, Analog Devices, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they came to us and said, look, we think there are families in Canada in three very specific sectors. So energy, uh, financial services, uh, and government, which we think could play a strategic role in building this business. And uh, we're able to deliver those types of families from Canada. So, you know, again, that's an illustrative example of where, you know, we think this company, what, what Palantir is to data analytics and Palantir is a $40 billion market cap. We think Versic, we think this company is the same to uh, cybersecurity. So hopefully we're right. So the valuation we bought in was 400 million, uh, but hopefully this company uh, has significant runway ahead of it. That sounds really impressive. Um, and if you were to talk about the challenges that fourth lane is having with regards to the business, uh, what families need, how families have managed COVID, how you with your services have helped them manage some of those needs. What are your findings? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, the, uh, I'd say we're all human, right? So what do we do when we're, we see a threat? Um, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We retrench to the basics. So I would say, you know, uh, what would your average family retrench to? So first of all, you're just in shock. <laughs> so, so generally you may do nothing. Uh, then the first thing you focus on is your operating business. So how do I stabilize my, or my, my operating business or group of operating businesses? Uh, the second focus for a family during COVID has been their investment portfolio. So once you have those two in order, then you convert back to, uh, let's talk about, for example, learning and development for the next gens. It is very important, uh, but it is, it's a long tail investment. So it just doesn't generally have priority during a crisis which COVID for many families was. Uh, the other element is, you know, the outsourced CFO model. Uh, you know, many of the larger families, uh, you know, they've, they've had a, you know, an accountant or a lawyer uh, or both or many, you know, for multi-decades. So if you look at the demographic transition, uh, these are long trusted relationships. And although they do want to transition that, 
you know, the, they would like to transition to a fourth lane. Uh, you don't usually go through multi-generational transition uh, when you're going through a crisis. Now, having said all of that, the good news is uh, it's always darkest before dawn. So we are actually seeing families now refocus uh, on learning and development and outsource CFO. But we definitely saw a retrenchment to operating business and investing uh, for the last call it 15 or 18 months. Right. Thanks, Ken. You know, you talked about your career history, which is quite extensive. And I would imagine you've built incredible relationships and are still building them, obviously. Um, If you were to talk about the key elements to building long-term sustainable and meaningful relationships, what would you say? Well, that's a great question, Karen. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I have all the answers to that. definitely a a continuous work in progress i'd say you know the first thing is uh trust and i think trust comes from empathy i think humans have an incredible ability um, and maybe it's at the subconscious level but they can sense trust and and something that surprised me in a very pleasant way is uh families of wealth uh, I joke with them. I said, you're, you, you, you're the world's best risk managers. And they said, well, what do you think? They go, we grew up with these names. Within, you know, Everybody wants something from us. So we're, we've been conditioned. I said, well, yeah. I said, so interestingly, we, we have some families and residents at Forest Lane. And when you, when you go through an investment committee call, they're really good at understanding risks. So I'd say trust. And I think trust is built with empathy. But I think it's also built with a vulnerability. So something I have to give the millennials credit uh, for is they're like, Ken, be more vulnerable. And I'm like, I thought I was pretty vulnerable, but uh, I think vulnerability, I think trust is a long-term game. So there's no short circuit for trust. Having said that, you can accelerate trust. So I think vulnerability, when when you couple vulnerability to empathy, you have a real shot at accelerating that trust. I'd say, you know, the second thing is um, domain expertise. Uh, so you, you need to be the very best at what you do in the world. Uh, so somebody can be the most trustworthy, uh, but if they don't have the domain expertise, it's very difficult to build a relationship or do business. Uh, and, you know, the way I built my career really was domain expertise first and then relationship because I didn't think it was appropriate. If I can't if you can't add value to somebody's life or business, then really you're just harvesting a relationship. And that has always felt wrong for me. Uh, but I think relationships are very important because families are not institutions. And then, you know, I guess there's the likability or values alignment. And, and that is very unique to you. Uh, I, I think, you know, there are some other wonderful multifamily offices in Canada. Uh, we're not going to be a fit for everybody. You can't be. Mm-hmm. You have to be you. You have to be authentically you. And, you know, that's one of the challenges when you're a younger business, right? Uh, you know, the old saying uh, on Madison Avenue is uh, when you're starting a business, every client's a good client, <laughs> right? And But that's not the right way to build a sustainable relationship or a business because you're not a cultural fit. And so, you know, we try to screen for those. Uh, but I would say from a good news perspective, uh, what I found very encouraging across Canada is I really do believe diversity is our strength. There's some really interesting people in all pockets of our country in every age. I, I, if you would have said to me the amount 
of wealth created uh, in the growth equity sector in Canada by people who are like 20 to 35. I, I never would have thought it. And remember, I was a technology investment banker. So it's not like I wasn't exposed to the sector. Uh, so that's been pretty, you know, encouraging. And uh, so I, 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 I would say building relationships in Canada has been uh, a lot of fun, uh, but with a lot of learning as well. Sure. Well, you sound really optimistic. And uh, I guess my last question would be, if you were just to tell the people listening to this podcast, which are, of course, investors and industry professionals that are coming here to learn, what would you say about um, how you think people should be thinking right now? I think so. <clears throat> you know, the, the central banker in me looks at balance sheets, debt. Uh, we have a lot of issues, uh, you know, uh, populism, et cetera demographics. So that all of that is true. We have very serious challenges as a world. Having said that, here's an upside risk that I think the market is not talking enough about at all, is I think COVID has massively accelerated innovation. So there's a leading global technologist and innovation thinker, Palo Alto-based Kurt Carlson, who helped lead the Stanford Research Institute as CEO, he helped build Siri, which was eventually sold to Apple, and advised President Obama in Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew on entrepreneurship. Kurtzson is 70, so he's seen a few cycles, to say the least. He makes the very interesting observation that the market may materially be underestimating earnings growth because the velocity and quality of ideas, which come from the whole world's brains, just increased by perhaps a very material factor. Here's how the positive innovation flywheel may work. First, talent starts to become decentralized globally. We're actually seeing this uh, based on our Fortune 500 channel checks. Each sector then has to digitize three to 10 years faster than it did before COVID. And this in turn creates a war for talent for those professionals who actually can help digitization happen. And this war for talent, you could argue, will cause uh, employers to be more flexible in allowing talent to live in lower cost jurisdictions. Uh, what, and that ultimately means that Digital collaboration has to be embraced by every company. Uh, and voila, uh, a whole lot more of humanity is contributing to the funnel of good ideas, which is ultimately the lifeblood of innovation. Thanks, Ken. That was a really great um, highlight for the end of this interview. And I hate to cut it short, but 30 minutes goes by really quick. Um, Ken, I want to say thanks for your, for your vulnerability and for sharing uh, your history with us and also uh, you know, sharing a little bit about Christine and your experience. I'm very sorry again for your loss, um, heartfully, heartfelt fully. <laughs> and thanks for being here today. Uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you very much, Karen. You're welcome. Bye-bye. In closing, I'd like to take this opportunity to wish everyone a wonderful summer ahead. If you are interested in learning more about our interview series, please get in touch with me directly at k.aslin at introcap.com. Bye for now.